19 years ago, he disappeared without explanation. It is now 2022, and he is ready to talk. Horror. Movies. Ah, Nightmare 2, Freddy's Revenge. Poor production quality, poor acting, poor budget. Most confusingly, though, there's a little bit of an undertone here. Just a teensy bit, and you all know what I'm talking about. Get ready for this week's review of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. All right, Adrian, so you ready to do another? We had that breakout success of a debut last week, and in true unoriginal style, we will follow it up with a sequel. Yeah, let's do it. Let's keep the Freddy theme alive for now. So anyway, after all those stacks of cash piled up from the success of the original, the producers immediately wanted to churn out a sequel. It was rushed, from what I understand, and I don't think they were really focused on delivering a worthy follow-up. They just wanted to slap something together and make money. While I find that kind of endearing, because it kind of reminds me of myself, they actually didn't even initially want Robert Englund. They thought any schmuck with Freddy makeup on could do the job. And apparently during the initial shots, the next Freddy just wasn't cutting it. So, and perhaps the only smart thing done by this director, they decided they need England back. But what makes this movie a lightning rod, especially in in recent years, are the gay undertones. I don't remember any discussion of this in the 80s, and I'm not sure why. I certainly didn't recognize it by the time I turned 17 and watched it around sometime around 1991. But at that time, I wouldn't recognize symbolism or allegory or nuance if it struck me in the face. But anyway, I don't rip it for that. But I do rip it for the director, Jack Shoulder, claiming not to know anything about it. Now, as far as I know, if you're the director, you call the shots and you have the final say. To think he was oblivious is inconceivable. And what's worse, other than how he obviously added this stuff, was that he went way over the top with it. And in the process, he pretty much ruined a young man's acting career and probably put him at odds with people in his personal life. Even if the gay theme went over the heads of a lot of viewers back then, there were definitely people in the industry who could see what was going on, and therefore, that became a problem for Patton. You know, it's sad that Shoulder could have made a statement with this film. It, and maybe somehow he could have done it smartly by sitting down with Patton, having a conversation about what his so-called vision was. But that's the problem here. Patton wanted to keep this quiet. And Shoulder didn't care to discuss his plans. I mean, just imagine if they could have figured it out and done it cleverly, done it smartly, like the way we do our podcasts, and not stupidly like the way they did. Yeah, I mean, we'd be looking back on it and saying, like, wow, this shoulder guy was really ahead of his time, no? Yeah, this shoulder guy. (laughs) Exactly. Do we look back in Nightmare 2 and say that? Hell no. All we get is incessant cackling and chuckling from random viewers saying, like, Elm Street is gay. (laughs) Did you ever notice that? It's the gayest movie ever made. (laughs) You know, I actually heard the director, Jack Shoulder, agree to go on some lame-ass podcast a little while back. Did you find that podcast? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's just as well. Seriously, there was like a 10-minute buildup of them kissing the movie's ass. And then once the director comes on, they totally kiss his ass. And all they do is say how much they love the movie, but never know. They never say why or what it does well. It was like a horror podcast about nothing. It was the (laughs) Seinfeld of horror podcast minus the humor. The one girl was like, oh, Nightmare 2 is so good because 
because it's good. Then this other voice would come on and it's, it's like, it's, it's so good in a more shrillish voice, but neither, neither said why and neither pressed shoulder on the gay stuff. So shoulder comes on there and they're like, Oh, it's be, you know, it's beautifully shot and it's bone chillingly scary. And the questions were really hard hitting too. Like what was the first day of filming? Like it was like asking a fifth grader, you know, how his first day of school is. <laughs> what was the most startling moment? What were people's reactions? Like seriously, if you had the director of a major motion picture on your podcast, which I don't know how they did, and I don't know why he agreed to do it, but that's the best you can come up with. So who knows why he agreed to do it? Maybe he was bored and had absolutely nothing else to do. I picture him sitting in some old ratty, torn up, puke green looking recliner, Coke bottle glasses and curly red hair with his foot up on a stool, his head in one hand, a Miller light in the other with several hard boiled eggs eggs balanced on his abdomen as he speaks to these two his abdomen <laughs> well he has to rotate the miller light and the eggs in and out of one hand he can't do three things at once you know <laughs> well i think a podcast about their podcast is more compelling than what they put together so uh do you actually have anything to say about the movie itself you mean we shouldn't be podcast reviewers <laughs> i guess we should get <laughs> yeah okay so getting back to the movie itself the thing is that we got these two oddballs at the helm here. Yes, two. I'm not talking about that podcast anymore. I'm talking about the writer and the director of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Let's not forget David Chaskin. He might be more to blame than Shoulder. So Shoulder has the opportunity directed the sequel to an absolute masterpiece, Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street 1. And this is the nonsense that he delivers to us. It's like being handed the keys to a Mercedes of a franchise, and then you immediately drive it into the ditch. Here's the thing. Regarding the general idea of the movie, it's, it's not really scary the way the first one was. You can't tell when it's the dream world or the real world. Freddy just seems to appear and disappear whenever he wants, whether or not anyone is sleeping. This is what kills the creativity of the first one. When you knew somebody was falling asleep, that's when something scary was going to happen. And the suspense was unbearable as you just sat and waited to see what it was. With this movie, there's no distinction. So it just becomes a one-dimensional slasher type movie where the killer is just out there all the time. What I loved about the original is that you had those temporary gaps of time where you knew everybody was awake and you had a chance to catch your breath. You knew you were safe again, but sooner or later, somebody was going to fall asleep again, and that's when the terror would begin. I guess it just seems to be the consensus that Freddy was trying to use Jesse to bridge the gap into the real world and manipulate him into killing people, even if they are not sleeping. So Freddy initially enters Mark's dreams like you'd expect, but doesn't kill him. He makes him kill people while he's dreaming, like Coach Snyder. But as the movie goes on, um, it doesn't seem like he needs for Jesse to fall asleep anymore. And and this just continues. Um, for example, I'm thinking of the pool party where Freddie just busts out of Jesse and kind of tosses Jesse's body away and starts slashing people up himself anyway. But then in the mirror, Jesse sees Freddie and it's like both of them were involved. I don't fucking know. I mean, I'll just I'll be honest. I didn't really completely understand the movie. I'm not sure what that says about me that I didn't understand a one-star cut-rate slasher sequel. I was just too bummed out that it was such a decline from the original. 
they became one, Ben. Come on. Remember, <laughs> once Freddie cast Jesse's body aside, you could hear Jesse inside Freddie's mouth telling Meryl oh. Streep that he loved her. <laughs> oh, man. They became one. <laughs> <laughs> just the sound of that. You know, you pretty much summed it up. That just really tells you all you need to know about this movie. It shouldn't have been called Freddie's Revenge. It should have just been called Freddie and a Random Dude Become One. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Was the pool party the scene where Freddie kills Grady, then just stands there for five minutes in the mirror taunting Jesse or something? Yeah. Yes. I love that part of the movie. I Actually, I'd mentioned it briefly. It might be my favorite part of the movie, but not intentionally. He's just laughing like a jackass in front of the mirror, waving his knife fingers at Jesse and kind of like pointing him in a taunting way. And Jesse's just like, you bastard you killed him and freddie's just like ah <laughs> and then jesse would be like you bastard ah <laughs> and just goes back and forth like that for five minutes i loved it you know something i mean i will give the creators credit to an extent they tried to do something different and it could have been a clever idea with freddie wanting to ratchet up the body count by being a 24 7 killer rather than just a Dreamtime killer. By 85, when this came out, maybe they were thinking of amping up the body count like in the Friday the 13th sequels. That was the only big three competition at the time, because at that point, it was just assumed that Michael Myers was done. He got burned up four years earlier in Halloween 2, and he wasn't in part three. So that's a long time, considering we saw Freddy and Jason pretty much every year since the beginning of those movies coming out. Wait, back up a minute. They made Halloween 3 without Michael Myers? Yeah, that's a whole other situation, which has been debated to death in the million years since it happened. And it was a sore spot with the Myers fans for a while. But, as you know, we would later get more of him than we would ever need, especially since right now he is the only one to still have a presence in the modern day. But one day we'll talk about that more. Hmm. So... The first nightmare stood out from the other two of the big three, and then it created a multidimensional killer who patiently waited for teenagers to fall asleep and dream, and this is what allowed him to blaze his trail of terror. And he was just scary to look at, really. He was so much more than, for example, a guy with a hockey mask, or a guy with a bag over his head, or a guy with a William Shatner mask painted white. So, like the original, Chaskin and Shoulder did attempt to make an innovative movie of their own in their way. They were trying to create that relationship between Freddy and Jesse. I mean, I hated what they did because of the poor execution. And, oh, by the way, totally ruining a guy's career and social circle in the process. But, yeah, they attempted to do something different. Um, but, all things considered, though. This, folks, very well may be the furthest drop from a successful original movie to the follow-up. I mean, it's greater than the distance between Heinz Ketchup to Hunt's. <laughs> Only one year after we saw the success of the original, and this brilliant duo delivers the garbage, this kind of garbage to us, and they made us pay for it. But as I said, I suppose the director doesn't get the full blame. The writer may be the main culprit. It's just easier to blame the director because they're more visible. But get this, Chaskin, the writer, says if people think the movie is gay, then he blames Patton for turning the thing gay. For real, he claimed that as filming proceeded, Jesse seemed to be steering the role into a more and more gay production. 
So one blames the other and we get the chicken and the egg scenario. Well, maybe Chaskin was subconsciously influencing Shoulder to subconsciously influence Patton, <laughs> who reciprocated it back to Shoulder to direct the movie more gay, just like Freddie was trying to manipulate Jesse. Wow, you might be onto something. But uh, notwithstanding, though, we have a room filled with white, melting, dripping wax candles, guys pulling each other's pants off, Freddie inside Jesse's body, Jesse screaming like a girl. And by the way, that's the only time I know of where a male character plays the role of what's typically reserved for a female. But oh no, none of that was written into the original script. No, no, no. Patton made the movie that way by playing the part too gay. So anyway, these two misfits claim to have no intention of anything being gay in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I was not a film student. I'm not a movie connoisseur, but I do know that if you are the director of a movie or play or TV show, you have the final say in what each and every scene is comprised of. If there's a thousand cuts or edits in a movie, like you have control over all 1,000 of them. Yep. And likewise, you have the final say in what should not be on screen i.e. if someone left their suspicious-looking melted wax candles burning <laughs> or guys pulling each other's pants down, it's your job to say, cut the shit. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, you know what? And then guess what? So years later, in 2010, Shoulder actually admits there was a gay subtext. Mm. Oh, so both these guys were frauds after all. Patton was struggling with his sexuality. Uh, we didn't mention this earlier, but he has officially come out as gay since. But this movie made him do it because he started getting asked a lot of questions. And guess what? Chaskin and Shoulder knew he was gay because he confided in them. And also, he asked them not to leak it out. And this was the homophobic mid-1980s. If you remember, folks, nothing about that decade was kind to gay people. If that kind of information hit the mainstream, it would ruin a guy's career. Um, so what did they do? They created a movie to do it for them. And they broadcast it, you know, by the medium of mainstream film. So, I mean, that's it. Wes Craven made one of the most creative horror masterpieces ever of all time. And what did these two guys do? They made the Nightmare franchise their own personal amusement park of, you know, how gay they could make a movie, ruining a guy's career and life in the process. But why? I just don't get it. And again, the funny thing is, a lot of people, including myself, didn't seem to pick up on any of this, um, the whole gay sub-theme until recent years, which is really interesting. Yeah, I noticed that while reading up on it, like if you do a Google search on Nightmare on El Elm Street to gay, you will see more hits on that than you can believe. But after scrolling through pages of returns, the earliest article I can find written is 2015. Right. It's amazing. It's like a totally new phenomenon that has grabbed people's attention only in recent years. Um, and I don't know. It's like this movie is always played every year on TV. It's it's perfect fall Halloween type of movie that's since the 1980s. It's, they've, they've done that on network TV, but it's never talked about until now. It probably went over the head of most of its intended audience because who the hell would expect it in a horror movie? But people weren't totally oblivious it's it's just weird how now it's almost like even referred to it's it's actually not referred to as a nightmare sequel it's like just referred to as the gayest horror movie ever <laughs> so besides what we've been talking about for half the show what was this movie i mean say for someone like you who watched it at 14 and most of the stuff might have gone over your head 
Let's just say we're talking, taking it at face value and ignoring the undertones, if that's possible. Let's start with the title, Freddy's Revenge. Mm -hmm. What or who was he getting revenge on? I mean, Mm -hmm. he got the last laugh in the first one, and and there are zero characters from the original who transferred to the sequel. So they're all out of the picture. Who knows? I think the only revenge movie from the 80s that actually included vengeance was Revenge of the Nerds. (laughs) Nerds, nerds, nerds. Yeah, I mean, the only connection to the first one, besides Freddy himself, is the house. Supposedly, that is the same house that Nancy lived in. Oh, and what was the deal with Grady and Jesse? It's like they're enemies at first. Then minutes later, they're bonding in the locker room. Then by halfway through the movie, Jesse wants to sleep with him. And was he the new kid in school or what? I mean, so here's what doesn't make sense. He already knew the Meryl Streep girl well enough to drive her to school. And he's familiar enough with Jesse to have at least some kind of background with him. Yet Jesse's family just moved there. They just bought the Freddy house. And Grady doesn't even know it. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like, yeah, man, you're my enemy. And did you get a piece of that ass yet? But minutes later, it's basically like, oh, you just moved to this neighborhood and bought that Freddy house, huh? You better tell your daddy's a chump. It's like, what? That makes no sense. (laughs) Well, I mean, what would you expect from the two highly competent creators? Maybe Jesse is meant to represent a character from the first film, and Freddy is symbolically trying to kill him twice, or (laughs) Freddy mistakenly thought this guy was a survivor from the first film. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know who that would be. Well, I concede that perhaps Freddy is capable of making mistakes just like all of us. Um, I'm not sure if that'd be the case. Well, okay. So what does this movie do well? And... Are we ever going to get to how this affected you when you first watched it? Or was this one of those exceptions that we're doing for a different reason? Well, first things first, um, we have a few questions to address. So you'd asked a while, you had asked a while back about what exactly was this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so Freddie simply wanted to take over a dude's body and turn him into some kind of personal soldier or something to kill on his behalf. I guess apparently Freddie just isn't capable of killing enough people on his own not to his satisfaction. But as we also discussed, it was his gateway to the real world without having to wait around for, you know, someone to take a nap, I think. So Patton not only has Chaskin and Shoulder trying to manipulate him with the junk script, but he's got Freddy trying to manipulate him and make him kill his kid sister and his girlfriend and Grady and etc. As far as what it did well, People seem to like the sequence in the beginning, that bus teetering on the rocks, that whole image. I mean, yeah, I agree. That's a pretty cool part. I like the way it starts simply with the bus driving through the neighborhood. I like the look of that old school bus in the 80s. Kind of reminds me of the one I used to ride. And then like as as the beginning of the movie opens up, those big red New Line cinema graphics, that does it for me every time. It does take me back to childhood, kind of like the way Halloween 4 does. I'm not a a huge fan of that movie either as a whole, but it rocks the shit out of the opening credit sequence. Anyone who's seen that movie enough times knows what I'm talking about. The other thing that it takes me back to childhood um, also is the cover art. Even though it's not the movie's original poster, the video version image of Freddy peeking around the torn page with the flames in the background and the house in the front with that famous media logo, that's iconic to me. That's before I knew I wasn't going to like the movie. But that cover image is probably more striking to me than most horror movies of its time. Seriously. And 
like I said in the last episode, because clear illuminated shots of Freddy in the early movies were rare, and you get a lot of that with this, um, you know, the picture of Freddy and throughout this movie too. But aside from that, this movie isn't really worth seeing. It gives you plenty to talk about, I guess, but it didn't really find, I didn't find it much of a picture now. And yet it's the second movie ever to appear on your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say it aligned up well to tie in with the original, but that's not true either because it's got nothing to do with the original. And then I wasn't even going to talk about the gay stuff either, but I guess that's not true because we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what else would we have to talk about? Yeah, I guess so. The way I saw it, I mean, everybody is beating that to death with the gay subtext. And I didn't want to just be like another stooge talking about it. I think my take was a little unique in that the creators should be rightfully called out for wrecking Patton's career. You know, they didn't respect his wish to keep that part of his life quiet. You know, the Nightmare series as a whole, I don't consider that good. Um, the first one, definitely my favorite horror movie ever. But wow, did they go downhill fast. I love two and three for the cover art. And I remember when three came out, I was in seventh grade, actually. And um, I wasn't at my peak horror movie obsession yet, but I was definitely on a roll and picking up steam. I just remember it coming out. I remember seeing the image in the newspaper and I was like, wow, if I could only see it, it would probably be the best movie I ever saw. Just thinking about those characters, the image of, of the back of them standing on the blades, like all the different people that were in the movie trying to fight Freddy. Once I saw it, though, that was also kind of a letdown. Um, I still think it's okay because it brings me back to a lot of happiness, thinking back to when I was in high school and just obsessing about the cover art. And those are nice memories. <laughs> so I do sort of force myself to view it every Halloween time. And it's fun to watch, I guess. And then um, for as for four, I only just watched it in full last year, as a matter of fact. And I got to say, it wasn't bad. It was a pleasant surprise. Um, I thought the main chick was pretty badass. Not in an annoying way like they do with a lot of female leads these days. But um, I believe the characters in this movie were more likable, probably than the rest of the series, including the original. If you're the type that strongly roots against Freddy, this movie's definitely for you because everybody in the movie is just plain likable. And you can really get behind them. But it doesn't mean that they're all that memorable, though, if that makes any sense. Even the main protagonist, Alice Johnson, right down to her name, is not that memorable. But man, while you're watching it, though, I just think it's really entertaining and you can see a real transformation in her and good character development. She goes from being a quiet victim of her abusive father to a real badass over the course of the movie. There's one quote from the movie. I remember one of her high school friends watching her walk away in the distance and saying, she's changing every day. And that was pretty much her getting tougher and inevitably getting more and more prepared for the showdown with Freddy at the end. And I love all that. So nothing else in the series after that is worth watching, not whatsoever. So as a whole, I think this series is probably my least favorite of the big three. But the original Nightmare on Elm Street has any other film beat of the big three, just on originality alone. It being a better movie on its own. Yeah. Really? Even the original Halloween? Yeah, for me, I got to say, um, it it would be. I don't know if it's just because the original Halloween just feels older. It came out in the late 70s, actually. It wasn't even officially in the 80s. But honestly, I just kind of felt like by the time I saw it, it just felt like a slow mover. I mean, I just wasn't that scared by it. 
So anyway, all this talking about movies this week and last week, it's really making me feel like a film critic, Um, which actually that was one of my early childhood interests. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I actually would read Roger Ebert's movie guide from cover to cover. And man, that guy was brilliant. I mean, he could really have been a college professor, but he would do his reviews in such a way that wasn't talking down to the average person. But you could tell the guy was brilliant. And writing skill and vocab I have today, I attribute to reading, some of it at least, I attribute to these movie guides and reviews. So many good adjectives. I mean, our parents were also very good at uh, expressing themselves. But, you know, having those books also, it's just like, it was just really fun, I think, going through and just kind of getting a grasp of how they would describe movies. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, I don't think we're done with these nightmare movies either. I think we should invite Mark Patton to be on the show for a special encore presentation of Nightmare 2. I'm sure he hasn't had enough Nightmare 2 talk in the last 40 years or so. <laughs> well, that'd be pretty impressive if you can land him on here in a two-week-old podcast. Guess it all depends if he likes my style. And, of course, if he knows about it. <laughs> Regardless, it's better than putting that chaskin or shoulder creep on here. By the way, those guys, they're invited too. We're attention and celebrity horrors here at Not Your Average Horror Show. Yeah, I'm sure they will rush to do that after you called their movie dog shit. <laughs> Did I call it that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't totally hate it. I mean, oh, you know what? I wanted to mention something else earlier. Hang on. Let me grab that book over there. All right. So there was one thing also I wanted to bring up here. I have this encyclopedia of New York Times movie reviews from the mid-80s, and I found a specific one of Nightmare 2. And surprisingly, the New York Times gave it a good review. <laughs> um, Janet Maslin, who is one of my favorites, makes, you know, she she said that like it's got a lot of, I don't know, good surprises and some funny dialogue, like when that parrot explodes. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, oh, it's that new food you've been feeding it. Like, <laughs> she was impressed by that. I was kind of surprised and disappointed. Mm, yeah, didn't mention the gay undertones went right over her head. Or, you know, we were going to do our rhyme. Oh, yeah. Gee, I don't know. Should we do that? I guess. Why not? All right. Pants- Go, ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Pants pulled down, male ass shown. Jesse pops a boner while he plays with a phone. Dance to touch me, baby, all night long. Jesse wants a piece of pretty slong. <laughs> Jesse walks around naked out in the rain. Jesse's got the body, but Fred's got the brain. No girls allowed. Sign on the door. Jesse drives a car called the Deadly Dinosaur. Coach chained to the wall, his ass whipped till there's welts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probe the game is on Jesse's shelf. Freddy inside Jesse. Wow, what a thrill. Exploding wieners on the grill. And that, folks, is just the tip of the iceberg in this movie. Actually, I guess some of that stuff in the rhyme list wasn't necessarily gay. It was just kind of stupid. Yeah, I don't know if the deadly dinosaur or (laughs) wieners exploding on the grill. Uh, The wieners on the grill was definitely gay. You got to (laughs) admit. But anyway, that is Nightmare 2. So be sure to tune in next week when we definitely will not review Nightmare on Elm Street 3. It's going to be something different. A surprise. Yeah, we'll go a different direction with that. All right, then. 
Well, keep your comments coming. Uh, I can't imagine what kind of reaction we would get from this review of Nightmare 2. But uh, if you have anything informative or good or bad to say, go for it. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> All right.